Well, we've been mentioning in the last half hour, we were talking to Serge Saint-Arnaud, the brother of Annie Saint-Arnaud, who was one of the 14 women killed on December 6, 1989 at the École Polytechnique. Tomorrow marks 33 years since that day. Uh, there will be ceremonies and words of remembrance right across the country, we know, as there always is on the 6th. Now, one of the lasting legacies of that day uh, is that it helped usher in tougher gun laws in this country. Certainly families of the survivors, the survivors and families of the victims um, bonded together to try to fight for tougher gun rules in this country that a majority of Canadians support, right? But the current government, again, with what appears to be significant public support, is in the process of overhauling our existing gun control policies under something called Bill C-21. Now, there's been some controversies around it, and here's why. Uh, And we'll get someone who knows a lot about this to weigh in on it in just a second. But it includes a freeze on the sale or transfer or transfer of all handguns. More money for border enforcement, which is needed, considering researchers say, and police say, that the lion's share of handguns being used to commit crimes in this country now are being smuggled in from the U.S., which new Canadian laws will have little impact on. When it comes to gang crime, where a lot of the rise in gun violence is being seen, uh, we spoke to one former Toronto gang member a few weeks ago who now guides those trying to get out of that life uh, about this very issue of handguns. Here's what he had to say. I've never actually seen anyone actively go out and seek a legally sourced firearm in order to kill someone. It's just, it just doesn't make sense. Daryl Wilson speaking to us from Toronto a few weeks ago. Now uh, the government has introduced last-minute amendments to C-21 that introduces new language around the definition of what is an assault-style weapon. And this has created a lot of controversy because gun control advocates say they've been waiting for decades for this kind of ban. Uh, But opponents say now that the proposed definition would bar some firearms used for hunting. And the government's tried very hard to not do that. But, you know, with this definition, we just don't know yet. Today, the Prime Minister seemed to be shifting his tone a little bit on this legislation being studied by members of Parliament. At a news conference in Ontario, Trudeau said that he's listening to concerns that some of the firearms his government is looking to ban are really, in fact, used more for hunting. And that's what we're listening to feedback on now to make sure that we're not capturing uh, weapons that are uh, primarily hunting weapons. But we all know that we need to make sure that guns that are designed to kill the largest number of people as quickly as possible have no place in Canada. And I suspect they already don't. I mean, that's part of the issue here is that, um, you know, that there's very different views on this depending on where you live, depending on what part of the country you're living in many times. Uh, you know, a lot of kids who, like myself who grew up in cities don't have a lot of contact with firearms. They just don't. Um, so I think it's important in these cases that what we're looking for here is reasonable policy that protects people. Of course, we don't want semi-automatic, you know, we don't want uh, assault-style weapons on the streets or people using them to commit mass murders. Clearly, that's what we don't want. What we also don't want is to turn the notion of gun control into a very divisive political issue like so many things become these days. We certainly don't want to see what we see in the States, which is just sort of this, you know, uh, Second Amendment madness, this the, the repeats of these horrific tragedies. We certainly don't want to see that. So where is the middle ground here? And in honor of, of the 14 women who died at Polytechnic 33 years after those deaths, how do we continue to honor their deaths with gun control that makes sense, gun control that is effective? 
Well, to help us with that is Noah Schwartz. He's an assistant professor of political science at the University of the Fraser Valley. He's also author of On Target, Gun Culture, Storytelling, and the NRA, and a researcher who spent the better part of the last five years researching gun policy and gun culture in this country and in the U.S., and he joins us now. Thank you for your time. Hey, thank you so much for having me. You know, we're approaching the 33rd anniversary of December the 6th, 1989. I remember that day. I was in Montreal on that day. How much has gun policy changed since then uh, in terms of tightening up on gun, on gun, you know, sort of introducing new gun restrictions and so forth? Yeah, no, that's a, a fantastic question. Um, so I think to answer that question, we actually have to go back a little bit further. So uh, most Canadians don't actually realize that until the 1970s, long guns especially were, were pretty much unregulated in Canada. There was no licensing like we have today, uh, nothing like that. Um, there were registration of handguns, but other than that, um, you could buy you know a long gun at the hardware store. This started to change in the 1970s uh, with Bill C-51, and this introduced sort of a background check uh, system. You had to go to a police station, apply for what was called a firearms acquisition certificate, um, and with a one-time background check, you could get that. The problem was the rejection rate for that was quite low, uh, so it wasn't necessarily the best process uh, for vetting who should be a firearms owner and who shouldn't. After the Ecole Polytechnique attack, um, there was a considerable amount of attention placed on this policy area, and the advocacy work done by survivors uh, of the massacre was instrumental in really making the push for stricter gun control in Canada. And so you have new legislation brought in that really strengthens Canada's gun control system a few years later in 1991. So there we have the system that was in place sort of before the Trudeau government came in, uh, where you have licensing. Uh, gun owners have to take a one to two day course, apply for a license. There's a 28 day waiting period. They have to interview uh, your spouse or intimate partner. Or if, you know, in the event of a breakup, you have to provide the contact information for your ex-partner. It's a, a very rigorous system of screening that was put into place after this to try to prevent something like this uh, from happening again. It's remarkable to think, I mean, when one sees the sort of number of mass shootings in the U.S. and so on, to think back to just the impact that that one day had on the way we viewed guns in this country, for the most part. Yeah, a lot of that has to do with Canada's political institutions. Um, it's a lot easier to make change in the Canadian political system. Obviously, in the American political system, you have uh, the division of powers in government. You have the, the Senate and, and the House uh, being potentially under the control of different uh, different parties. There's a lot more points at which legislation can get tossed out or stalled in the U.S. system. Uh, in the Canadian system, we have less of those barriers, so it's sort of easier to, to react to public opinion. And so for many, many years following the early 90s, Canada had fairly strict gun Gun, I mean, we did have, it, was, it often came under criticism, but we, we did have fairly strict and fairly comprehensive gun policy in place. Yeah, that's correct. I mean, we have the the big ticket items that, that the literature shows are really important for preventing gun violence. So the first thing is licensing, right? At the end of the day, it's an individual who's going to misuse firearms that's going to result in a crime. Uh, so when you can screen individuals before they're able to purchase firearms, and the Canadian system has what's called continuous eligibility screening, states in the United States that have background checks. You might be able to pass a background check once, but then you go out and commit a number of crimes and the police don't necessarily have a connection between you and that gun. In Canada, uh, firearms owners are in the system. So you know, if a firearms owner commits a crime, even if it's unrelated to gun crime, the RCMP know where they live, they know what, where their guns are, and they can come and get them. They're also uh, able to screen people for people with violent histories, for example. We know uh, mass shooters, usually going on a violent rampage is not someone's first step 
uh, on the path to criminality. People usually don't just sort of snap overnight. There's often a long criminal history uh, that precedes that. And, and the Canadian system is good for sort of screening those people out. If we move fast forward a bit then to Bill C-21, which was sort of built on a lot of what was introduced back in the 1990s, how effective a policy is it when it comes to gun control? Because it felt like we had fairly effective policy in place. A lot of the same groups that you were talking about earlier, certainly the survivors groups from uh, the École Polytechnique, were certainly looking for even tougher laws, and they're supportive of Bill C-21. But just how far, where is it in terms of policy, how much better does it make what was already on the books? So I think, like with any policy, uh, there are elements of C-21 that are useful, especially those that increase funding to uh, borders. Because right. uh, what we see from the evidence is that, is that the majority, the overwhelming majority of the guns being used in crimes in Canada um, are being smuggled from the United States through fairly sophisticated networks of gun smuggling, often tied to organized crime. If you look at the the rise in gun crime that we're seeing uh, in the past couple of years, it's largely driven by gang-related crime in Canada's big cities. These are individuals that wouldn't be eligible usually to apply for a firearms license because of their criminal history. So they have to sort of go around the system to try to get firearms, right? Firearms are useful tools for gangsters. They allow them to do things like protect their turf, settle scores, and things like this. So if you can't get something legally, you're going to look to the black market. And unfortunately, because of Canada's geopolitical position, we're not in the position that Australia and the UK are in, um, where we can sort of hermetically seal our border. So I think strengthening the border is a good thing. It's going to help hopefully stop a little bit of that flow. The parts of C-21 that I I like less uh, are things like the handgun ban. Um, Handguns are already very tightly restricted under those 1990 laws. If you want to be a handgun owner in Canada, not only do you have to go through the normal Canadian firearm safety course, but you have to go through the restricted firearm safety course. It's another class, another exam, uh, another practical test. You have to uh, be a member of a, a gun club, which can cost up to 400 bucks a year in some cities. And, and you have uh, much more stringent storage requirements involved uh, with owning a handgun and transportation requirements. If you're driving to the range, for example, you have what's called an authorization to transport. You can't stop at Tim's on the way to grab a cup of coffee. You have to go directly to the range using the most direct route. Yeah. I've even, uh, in my interviews, I met gun owners who had a professional cartographer chart out that route so that they would be able to prove if they were ever charged in court that that was the most direct route. So there's a really stringent system in, in place and it, it made sure that people weren't owning handguns just to leave it in your, you know, in your bedside table, which is the case in the United States. If you're owning it, you're a serious sports shooter. You're involved in the shooting sports. So, so in, in other words, bringing in a ban was probably somewhat unnecessary. If, if most of the handguns out there that are being used to commit crimes are illegally be, being smuggled in illegally from the U.S., and the vast majority of handguns owned by owners, responsible owners in this country, are already under severe restriction, then banning them outright feels more political than it does policy to some extent. And, and I think if, if we're thinking about uh, the incentives that politicians have for legislation, right, politicians always have incentives to, do, uh, to put into place very visible policies. Right. Uh, Because that's what's going to win them the votes. That's what's going to increase their donations. And most Canadians don't know about the system that's in place. Uh, Most Canadians don't know about what gun control looks like in Canada. What we do see is the United States. And we see the the sort of rampant gun violence happening down there. And I think most people are are, are really worried about public safety. So if, if you don't know about what the system that's in place, it's very easy to kind of suggest to people that this is going to make you safer. I think uh, the Minister of Public Safety, Marco Mendicino, said we are going to eradicate gun violence in Canada. And I'm sitting here as someone who spent a lot of time studying this policy and thinking, 
you, you can't seriously make that promise. I mean, even countries like the United Kingdom and Australia still have gun violence and they're islands or continents that can seal themselves off much more effectively than we can. I live here in Abbotsford. I'm three kilometers from the U.S. border and it's largely farmers fields. Right. And, and you know, CBSA does their best to keep the border safe. But but there's a lot of a lot of points uh, where things can flow across. Noah Schwartz is with us this half hour. He's an assistant professor of political science at the University of the Fraser Valley, author of On Target. Uh, We've been talking about gun control in Canada. We're coming up to the 33rd anniversary of the Polytechnique Massacre on uh, Tuesday, December the 6th, tomorrow. Um, Noah, you've spent, this has been a bit of an odd one because all of a sudden Bill C-21 was kind of making its way through the usual process in Parliament. And then all of a sudden we saw some new categories uh, added and it, seem to very much catch, a, catch people off guard and be very much become a kind of not different, but a, a kind of much messier piece of legislation than it had been. What's going on? Yeah. So for a long time, the government has been struggling with something, uh, which is uh, defining an assault weapon. Um, this sort of points to the idea that that they settled on the term assault style weapon, which kind of hints that the fact that this is sort of more framing technique uh, than objective category. And this was one of the major criticisms of, for example, their 2020 assault style weapon ban. They were banning certain firearms that were functionally equivalent to other firearms that were still legal. It's just that these were sort of more famous. They'd maybe been used in an incident, something like this. So it would catch public attention. So I think they were trying, what they were trying to do is sort of reconcile those differences by then just saying, okay, we'll come up with this evergreen definition, um, which is any semi-automatic firearm capable of accepting a, a removable magazine, which is most semi-automatic firearms. The danger for them is that is that they did something, I think, with this change that they've been very careful not to do. And that's they've been very surgical about targeting certain elements of the, the gun community um, and leaving the hunting community untouched. And this is due to the blowback against the long gun registry, because the long gun reg- registry really activated that community of hunters in Canada. And there was a lot of blowback against that policy. So since then, they've been really careful to maybe target sports shooters who are a smaller group in Canada, but leave hunting uh, alone for the most part. I think the problem with expanding this definition is that now we're getting into some of those firearms. I mean, even the original ban touched on certain hunting firearms. Um, But I think this uh, amendment touches now on a much larger group of hunting firearms, including, for example, the SKS, which is a rifle that's very commonly used. It's very um, cheap, easily available, um, and especially for sort of maybe low-income hunters, subsistence, subsistence hunters. I know um, there's a lot of uh, evidence that, that it's uh, very popular with Indigenous hunters, for example, uh, in northern or hunters in northern communities. So when you look at this, then they've they've cast a very wide net. I mean, I feel like the the, the blowback has been very very quick. Um, what happens now? Do you think? I mean, this, is this is this just a bad, an overly broad definition that leaves too much room for interpretation? I think we're in sort of uncharted waters. Uh, for the past five years that I've been researching this issue, the liberals have very much been in control of the narrative. And I think that they're slowly losing control of the narrative with this amendment. Um, you saw Carrie Price from the Montreal mm-hmm. Canadiens speaking out against the ban. And you haven't seen uh, any other celebrities really get involved in this issue in Canada, certainly not on, on the side of the pro-gun coalition. The Liberals are starting to realize that they may have, have reached a bit too far and ended up activating that community that they'd been hoping to avoid activating. And I think anyone else looking at this thinks, well, you know, gun control policy is all fine and dandy if it creates a safer environment, right? That's what we're, the, the end goal here is safer communities, right? And I'm just wondering sometimes when you look at at um, at Bill C-21 and especially now, whether it, whether it 
does tries to do too much and and it it tries to be everything to everyone uh over a, a subject that as you well know as you know better than anybody really is incredibly complex the the end goal should always be public safety mm-hmm. and that's something that i've i found very frustrating watching the politics of it all because obviously you know policy should create be created best based on the best available evidence um but Policymakers are, are in an environment where they're responding to rewards, um, which are political rewards, whether that be the support of certain communities, things like this, activating others. So I, I think a lot of the legislation that we've seen, because Canada already had such a strong system in place, um, has been kind of tinkering in a way that will get attention rather than necessarily focusing on things that could make us safer. I think if we wanted to invest money to make communities safer, um, if we wanted to look at, at, for example, the communities where gun violence is happening. Right. What can we do to support those communities? Why has there been a rise in uh, gang violence, especially after the COVID-19 pandemic and the problems we've been having with inflation, for example? Right. How does poverty, how does inequality drive this crime and what can we do to tackle that? What's the link between the opioid crisis and crime and how can we provide support for people struggling with addiction? These are all all the really complex questions and, and there aren't the same political rewards, unfortunately, for tackling them. It's It's much it's much easier to say, look, we're banning these guns. We're doing something visible. Um, it's it's like I say, it's the liberals equivalent to tough on crime uh, legislation in, on the right. Very, very visible, not a huge amount of evidence to, to substantiate it. Yeah. And often the weapon is just one part of a very large problem. Noah Schwartz, as always, thank you. Thank you so much for having me on.